0: Hello and welcome to The
1: Conversation Weekly.
2: In this week's episode why so many Americans are struggling to feed themselves.
1: Due to COVID, what we're projecting is that between
3: 40 and 45 million Americans are fluents each year. We cannot divorce hunger in the U.S. from racist urban planning.
0: And the discovery of the bones of a small child carefully buried in Kenya 78,000 years
2: ago.
4: This is the earliest burial known so far in Africa.
2: I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London, and you're listening to The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts.
0: For the past few months, my colleagues here in the US have been working on a series about why so many people struggle to provide nutritious meals for themselves and their families.
2: Decades of research have shown that improving food security is a no-brainer. People who don't get the food that they need have more problems with depression and other mental health issues. Seniors have lower nutrient intakes, and children have higher rates of anemia. All of this results in
0: higher healthcare costs, a lot of which is put onto the government health insurance programs such as Medicare.
2: A household is defined as food insecure in the US if at some point in the past year it didn't have enough resources to have enough food for an active healthy lifestyle for its family. There'd been a dramatic increase in US food insecurity after the Great Recession of 2008 to nine. The
1: US government says the number of Americans using food stamps recently rose over 30 million for the first time.
2: Even after the economy began to recover, food insecurity rates remained stubbornly high until about 2014. But the situation began to improve then. By the time the pandemic hit, fewer people were
0: living in food insecurity than at any point since the US began measuring it in 1996.
2: But there were big racial disparities. In 2019, the official food insecurity rate for black people was 19%, more than twice as high as it was for white people at just under 8%. And it was just under 16% for Hispanic people. To find out why and what's been going on during the pandemic, we've talked to three experts who study food insecurity and food justice in the US. This is a story about who has access to food, about the legacy of racist urban planning in US cities and about money. And what it would actually cost the federal government to eradicate food insecurity in one of the world's richest countries.
1: Pandemic has led to a growing number of households
2: experiencing hunger in 2020, according to the nonprofit Feeding America, with unemployment levels rising and the ongoing health crisis. In the early months of the pandemic, when the economy crashed and unemployment soared, millions of Americans turned to charitable organizations to help put food on their tables.
5: In 2020, it was like this muscle that really got flexed where these food justice organisations and mutual aid networks were really rising to the occasion.
2: This is Caitlin Caspi. She's an Associate Professor in the Department of Allied Health Sciences at the University of Connecticut, UConn.
5: Just recently, I did a pandemic move from the University of Minnesota to UConn, where I'm also working at the Rudd Centre for Food Policy and Obesity, and I'm the Director of Food Security Initiatives
2: there. In March and April 2020, Caitlin says people mobilized quickly at a local level. aid ...groups are forming to protect and provide for the vulnerable, including the elderly,
5: incarcerated, undocumented and unhoused. It looked really different um, in different communities. And so in some communities, you saw that the school buses were being repurposed to deliver food. In many other communities, parking lots or sports fields were being repurposed as mass food distribution sites. In some places you even had People getting screened for food insecurity as they were getting a COVID test and they could get food right there. Washington,
1: the Tacoma Mutual
5: Aid Collective, is organizing free food programs for kids hit by school closures.
2: In the Bay Area of California, the West Oakland Punks with Lunch is working with the houseless community. Underneath this, another layer of grassroots support and mutual aid developed. Friends and neighbors helped each other out. Food justice organisations stepped in and people began using community gardens to grow food. The emergency was acute and the response was immense, but it all raises bigger questions about why so many people are struggling to feed themselves in the US and who they are. To find out more, I called up one of the US's leading experts on food insecurity.
1: My name is Craig Gunderson. I'm the ACES Distinguished Professor The Department of Agriculture and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois. I do research on the causes and consequences of food insecurity and on the evaluation of food assistance programs with an emphasis on the largest food assistance program, SNAP, formerly known as the Food Stamp Program.
2: Official statistics on food insecurity during the pandemic are yet to be published. But in the meantime, Craig and his colleagues have been tracking what's been going on. Remember, before the pandemic, food insecurity rates had been at an all-time low.
1: In 2019, to be more precise about this, there was about 35 million Americans who were food insecure. Now, due to COVID, what we're projecting is that there'll probably be an increase in food insecurity. So we anticipate that probably this has risen to about between 40 and 45 million Americans are food
2: insecure. 10.9% of Americans didn't have enough food in 2019. Craig's projections are that this rose to 13.9% in 2020 and will fall slightly to 12.9% this year. This is definitely a worrying increase, but Craig says that the general impression that food insecurity rates would skyrocket during the pandemic just hasn't happened.
1: We just really didn't see that, and it's for three main reasons. Um, The first is that the US government, the Trump administration, the Congress put together the stimulus package. A trillion-dollar attempt to rescue the American economy, teetering from the effects of the
0: coronavirus. The centerpiece, a $1,000 injection of cash directly into American pockets.
1: Which dramatically raised a lot of people's income, especially for poor households in some sense. They actually had more money after COVID than they did before COVID, which allowed them to purchase more food than they otherwise would. A second reason is that unemployment benefits were being paid to people who were unemployed. And in reality, these unemployment benefits were higher than what they had When they were working and therefore that also gave them more money to spend on food. A third and something that's oftentimes overlooked is the fact that there wasn't any sort of rapid price increase. The uh, agricultural supply chain in the United States is just remarkably vibrant and so because of this we didn't see increases in food prices, we didn't see shortages at our food stores and all these other things. So really it was was pretty amazing that, that things weren't worse during COVID.
2: But dig down deeper and there's a worrying trend. Craig projects that the rate of food insecurity for black Americans will fall slower than that for white Americans this year. This feeds into some of his wider research on racial disparities in food insecurity.
1: I think probably the two groups that we see the most concern with are black persons and American Indians. So let me first begin with American Indians. Rates of food insecurity amongst American Indians have remained stubbornly high since we began measuring food insecurity.
2: The official figures for indigenous communities can be difficult to unpick because of the way statistics are collected. But one recent study found that the rate of food insecurity among American Indians and Alaskan natives averaged 25% between 2000 and 2010.
1: America has something called map the meal gap, which provides county level estimates of food insecurity. And what you see is like these pockets in the United States, where overall you have lower rates of food insecurity, than you have these areas with really high rates of food insecurity, those are American Indian reservations.
2: In Craig's analysis, even after controlling for income and a host of other factors, Native Americans still have higher rates of food insecurity.
1: I think a lot of this probably comes down to location issues. Oftentimes American Indians are living in areas where there aren't many jobs in those areas. There's unlikely to be jobs in the near future. These are areas that have been poor for decades.
2: The other group with high levels of food insecurity are black Americans.
1: What we see is the main story about black persons in the United States is incredibly high rates of food insecurity in the upper Midwest, like in the Chicago, the Milwaukee, the Minneapolis, the Detroit, and relatively lower, much lower rates of food insecurity in the South, in Atlanta, in Charlotte, in Birmingham, and all these other cities there in the South. So in other words, is that it's really a, a tale of two different situations. These northern cities have long histories of really serious segregation, and you just don't see that in southern cities. You just don't see these patterns of racial segregation that you see in, in, in northern cities. So I think that that has a lot to do with it. Is that just that you know these areas were cut off from jobs, cut off from economic opportunities? But another component of this is that in the United States, of course, the South is the booming area. I mean, if you see it in terms of growth patterns, is the South is growing. This is where the future of our country is, is in the South. It's not in the North. And if you actually look at it at even a more granular level, at the zip code level, is you really see these sharp, sharp racial disparities that exist in a lot of northern cities. Areas that are predominantly white have really low rates of food insecurity in these cities. Areas that are predominantly black have really, really high rates of food insecurity.
2: To find out more about the role that racial segregation of American cities plays in access to food today, I called up Julian Adjerman.
3: I'm a professor of urban and environmental policy and planning at Tufts University in the Boston metro area. My interest is in what I call just sustainability. How do we move towards improving people's quality of life? now and into the future.
2: Julian says it's impossible to talk about food access in US cities without understanding the legacy of racist urban planning policies.
3: Urban planning in the US is the spatial toolkit of white supremacy. The way our cities are laid out is no accident, it's by design, and it has led to deeply segregated communities and really has inscribed areas of deep poverty and uh, lack of access to opportunity. We cannot divorce hunger in the US from uh, racist urban planning, certainly in our cities.
2: Can you talk us through, where would you start telling the story of, of how cities became segregated through urban planning?
3: Well... Let me illustrate through one particular city that's in the focus of our minds at the moment, and that's Minneapolis.
4: When do you want it?
3: Yeah.
1: You want it? You want it? unarmed Mr Floyd, who was black, died in Minneapolis after being pinned to the ground by a white police officer. He was the latest... In- Pre-1900,
3: there was a small African-American population in the city, but it was fairly well distributed. And then around the turn of the century, 1900, 1910, racist... Uh, covenants started to appear. These covenants were something along the lines of this property shall not be rented or sold to anybody other than in the Caucasian race. Horrifically racist terms were used to describe who was not allowed to rent or buy these homes. By about 1930, this action alone had created a concentration of African Americans in what is now North Minneapolis, and that population still exists. Now, you have to add on to this as well, that in many US cities, racist zoning was allowed. This was zoning for land use based on race. It was struck down by the Supreme Court of the US in 1917, but it was then replaced uh, by what's called single family or large lot zoning. Zoning on the basis of a large lot, an expensive property that basically many low income and minority, especially African Americans, would not be able to afford. So this is called exclusionary zoning. It excluded people. Then there was a period of redlining in the uh, and fifties when government loans, private sector loans were not permitted in certain neighbourhoods that were redlined on a map, literally uh, redlined as hazardous. And of course these were racially derived redlines basically. There was also a parallel process called yellow lining to stop Chinese and people from uh, Asia getting into these areas the cumulative effect of these processes is racial segregation. And only one nation on earth has done it better than the US, and that was apartheid South Africa.
2: So these urban planning policies influenced the way cities were designed, but how do they practically influence hunger and how black Americans get access to food in, in the 21st century?
3: So... The legacy of these racist planning policies is that there are still neighbourhoods which are very poor, neighbourhoods which have been characterised as food deserts or food swamps. There is some contestation over these terms because the terms food desert, food swamp almost implies a natural occurrence. Uh, Many critics prefer the term food apartheid, which really, I think, gets to the the racialized nature of these areas. So if you imagine all of those city planning policies that I mentioned, they concentrate poverty. The poverty is reflected in economic activity in the neighborhood, which is generally lower. And food availability in terms of uh, nutritious food at a reasonable price, culturally relevant foods, is much lower in these neighborhoods. And most U.S. cities have food desert areas, that can be overlain with these formerly redlined neighbourhoods, these areas where covenants were prevalent. It's a cumulative effect.
2: Now, as Julian says, these terms, food desert, food swamp, food apartheid, are contested amongst researchers. Craig Gunderson told me that he avoids using them.
1: Empirically... Is it's been shown again and again and again and again that food deserts have no relationship at all to food insecurity. So therefore, even to the talk about food deserts in the same context of food insecurity is just it's just misguided. Um, I always find it really insulting to people who live in those areas. It's like they take pride in their areas, and it's the same way when people call these also in another really annoying term is food swamps, where you're insulting people who live in these areas. I will say one thing, though, is but this doesn't mean that food access is not an issue. And I think that it is in very select cases. So, for example, coming back to American Indians, for those who are living on reservations, there could be not a food store nearby at all.
2: Often, Craig says it's not about how close somebody lives to a store, but about their ability to get to one. Someone may have a physical disability or face mental health challenges that make it difficult for them to manage a short trip. Or an older person may feel uneasy about leaving their house.
1: Far and away, the leading predictor of food insecurity in our country is disability status. Persons with mental health, disabilities and physical health, whatever their income is, they have much, much higher rates of food insecurity than persons
3: without disabilities.
2: For Julian Adgerman, these issues about access have an extra dimension for those living in areas that were racially segregated.
3: We can't just think of poverty as being kind of a monolithic thing. Poverty means lack of access to get on a, a bus or to get to places where fresh, wholesome, nutritious and affordable food is available. So these neighbourhoods are lacking in so many different ways and... You know, food access is just one of those.
2: To create a more just food system and to unpick the racist legacies that still haunt US cities, he believes action needs to come from a local level.
3: We need to start with an analysis that really nails the problem. What's impressed me most is a plan that I've seen for food justice in Boston, which is being proposed by mayoral candidate Michelle Wu.
5: We also need to be directing our resources not only towards the immediate relief and band-aids of the situation, but how do we address the long-term underlying crises that...
2: Wu is one of six candidates, all people of colour, running in Boston's mayoral elections this November. Julian and some of his students at Tufts have analysed her plan, and made some suggested improvements, which he says have been incorporated by Wu's team.
3: She starts the plan by saying food justice is racial justice. We need to decenter whiteness and white supremacy from local food systems, period. If we start from that position, from that recognition of the problem, then we can start to build...
2: In Minneapolis, Julian says a plan called Minneapolis 2040 is introducing policies to eliminate some of these racist injustices in urban planning. Remember,
3: 70% of the land area of Minneapolis was zoned for single families, and it's been replaced in Minneapolis with the ability now for developers to build duplexes and triplexes on formerly single-family zoned land. So we need removal of exclusionary zoning, including inclusion rezoning, which is equivalent to more affordable housing. Development of community land trusts, which can take land for the benefit of communities, for affordable housing, for maker spaces, for community programmes and projects.
2: On top of this, he says that local food justice programmes or urban agriculture projects on community land must be seen as an opportunity to build community not just to provide food.
3: There's plenty of evidence that the major contributor in local environments to to community power building is community projects that allow people to work together in terms of a co-op, in spaces that become spaces of engagement. People from the community get to meet each other across racial and ethnic difference. I think also we need to think about urban agriculture as part of a series of opportunities for local economic development. And we've got plenty of examples, again, in the Boston area, where local urban farms are working together with local restaurants or local food co-ops to diversify the foodscape, if you like, of the local neighbourhood.
2: Julian is optimistic about projects like this, and he's hopeful about the future. Still, in the meantime, many people need help urgently. And some turn to food pantries. Here's Caitlin Caspi again, whose research focuses on these food pantries.
5: Food pantries are often located in areas with a high proportion of, of Black and Hispanic residents.
2: These food pantries, or food banks, are part of a network of charitable food organisations across the US. They get their food via donations or directly from big supermarkets. She says the people who use them come from all walks of life.
5: All racial ethnic backgrounds people who are young and old. So national data would tell us that households with children and female-headed households and non-Hispanic Black households have higher rates of food insecurity, and they're also um, using the charitable food assistance system with greater frequency.
2: For over 50 years, the US has had the federal SNAP program. Today, this gives vulnerable Americans money to buy the food they need via an electronic card that they can use to shop in their local store. The level of support varies according to a household's income, and it's been increased during the pandemic. But for a number of different reasons, some households still don't get enough money from SNAP to cover their needs.
5: In our research, we found that about half of the people who are visiting food pantries are also using
2: SNAP. These food pantries also help people who fall outside of SNAP altogether because their income might be just over the eligibility threshold.
5: You might have people who do have a stable job Uh, or they make a decent wage, or they might even be considered middle class. But because they have really high costs of, for example, housing or childcare or medical costs, it's still hard for them to get food on the
2: table. Others may be unable to get help from federal food assistance programs for other reasons, for example, because they might be undocumented.
5: People might not participate because of their legal status um, or because of stigma, or because they don't meet work requirements or other cutoffs for these programs, um, or because they're just facing an acute crisis and it takes some time to sign up to get those benefits.
2: The food pantry system wasn't designed to be helping all of these people. Caitlin says it was set up as a stopgap measure half a century ago. Now, her research is showing just how crucial food pantries are in people's lives.
5: We've pretty extensively surveyed Minnesotans and found um, that among people using food pantries, they're really seeing it as a consistent source of a lot of their food. Um, One statistic that has really been surprising and replicated in almost every time we ask this question, we find that about half of clients say they're getting half or more of their total food from the food pantry. And people are also visiting food pantries and for long periods of time, they're going um, as often as they're allowed, which is usually about once a month, and they're going for a period of a year or more.
2: So what's the solution to stop people needing to turn to food pantries altogether? For Caitlin, part of the answer is improving the social safety net in the longer term. This is what Craig Gunderson told me too. While well, he thought that the increases made to SNAP during the pandemic and extra food support for children this summer were a good idea, this shouldn't just be a temporary increase.
1: Food insecurity is not a COVID issue at all. Is If we think that increasing SNAP benefit levels is a good idea during COVID, it's a good idea at any time.
2: Craig is a big advocate of SNAP. It works, he says.
1: Study after study after study has demonstrated that households that are on SNAP compared to eligible non-participants, that those households on SNAP are much less likely to be um, food insecure after controlling for different factors.
2: He recently wrote a piece for the conversation, arguing that it would be relatively simple for the Biden administration to eliminate food insecurity altogether using SNAP. It just requires more money.
1: If we increase SNAP benefit levels by about, on average, about $40 per week, This would lead to about a 60% decline in food insecurity among SNAP recipients. A second thing is, is that by expanding the SNAP eligibility threshold, so more of those households can get into the program, they'll also be removed from food insecurity. Currently, if you make less than $30,000 for a family of four, is in general, you'll be eligible for SNAP. What we're proposing is that for families making up to $45,000 a year, is that they would be eligible for SNAP. And for that, it's about a 70 percent decline if it was expanded to these new groups.
2: Craig said this would cost an extra 70 billion U.S. dollars a year. To put that in perspective, the total snap expenditure in 2020 was 79.2 billion U.S. dollars. For me, at
1: least, that's inexpensive. Okay, I mean, compared to what we spend, like I mean, the most recent stimulus from the Trump administration and from the Biden administration, the stimulus package is like five trillion dollars.
2: And this should be a priority, he says.
1: The mere fact that in a country with the wealth of the United States, that children are going to bed hungry or seniors don't know where their next meal is coming from, that in and of itself is of concern.
0: You can read more stories in that series we've been doing about U.S. food and security, including stories by Julian Adjimin, Craig Gunderson, and Caitlin Caspi, by clicking on the link in the show notes.
2: Yeah, and Caitlin has some new research coming out in a few weeks about how to make visits to food pantries more healthy and more dignified. So do keep an eye out for that on the conversation too.
0: Okay, now it's time to get your pickaxe and archaeological toolkit out. Gemma, do you have yours ready?
2: Sadly not, but if I did have one, where would I be taking it?
0: We're going to a dig site called Ponga Yasaiti in southeastern Kenya. Paleoanthropologist working there recently spotted a couple small teeth. These belong to a child who lived nearly 80,000 years ago. Researchers had found the oldest burial ever discovered in Africa. And by studying the child buried there, they found clues to what the world was like for our ancient ancestors.
4: My name is Maria Martino Torres. I am paleoanthropologist, and currently I am the director of the National Research Center on Human Evolution, the CENIE, in Spain. So paleoanthropology is the study of past human species. Now we are the only human species on earth, but if we look back, we could see that during the last six million years of history and evolution, there were many other homininous species and ancestors that were also like us looking for a way to survive and adapting to a changing landscape but to the different challenges that life is offering them. And this is what we do. We try to reconstruct our family tree. We try to investigate how these ancestors were, how they look like, how they were adapted to the landscape, to the interaction with other living creatures. And this is our interest in humans, but really going very far in the past.
0: You're obviously not interviewing these people. You're not studying their books, their literature, their movies. So how do you do this?
4: Well, one of the best tools we really have to investigate our past is through the analysis of the fossil remains we have of these species. This is a bit like the CSI. We try to investigate. We want to make them talk Um, because they don't really participate and they don't collaborate that much. We have to look for our own ways to make the dead speak. And for that, we have science. We have technology. Techniques. We have to use our creativity and imagination to try to extract as much information we can about those remains, who they belong to, and what happened to them. So we really have to reconstruct the whole sequence of events that let that body you find to be there in that place and in that specific way you're finding it in an archaeological excavation, for example.
0: This is a new finding you guys just published. Uh, can you describe what it was generally
4: We are talking about uh, research that is the result of a very large collaboration of more than 30 institutions and researchers from all over the world, led by the Max Planck Institute uh, in in Jena for the Science of Human History and the National Museums of Kenya and also the FENIA here in Spain. And what we discovered indeed was the earliest human burial is known in Africa.
0: Where in Africa is this?
4: Panga Yasaidi is a cave site located in the upland coast of Kenya It is an extraordinarily beautiful site. We are talking about a cave with a high shelter where archaeologists have been recovering very rich uh, findings related with all the symbolic explosion and behavior of our species like for a very long sequence. So we are talking of a community, probably of hunter-gatherers that were living in the tropical forest that were good hunters. We have remains of the animals they hunt. We have antelopes. We have also, for example, exploitation of shells and molluscs. So it is a population that was well adapted at, at that time. And this site in particular is a residential site. It means that these people were living in this cave.
0: So you got this uh, fairly complex community. What was this clue that led to unburying this, these bone remains?
4: At the moment in the site, they have excavated a trench, a narrow trench of a few meters by few meters. And in that trench, that at the moment has reached something like about three meters below the actual uh, floor of the cave, They found in 2013, like in the vertical wall, an undulation of a layer, no? They saw something funny, like a change of texture, of colour in the soil, and in 2017 they really reached to the extension of this layer, and they were identifying something like a pit that was filled with a sediment that was different in colour and texture to the rest of the sediment from that layer and inside that there were seen like several bones but when they were trying to recover they were so brittle that they literally disintegrate and the more we try is the worst so these people wisely decide that instead of keep trying and it should be better to try to really plaster and recover the whole amount of sediment containing those bones and bring them to the labs, where you have like more sophisticated tools and you can approach this problem let's say, with more delicacy or, or with more care. And in this case, they brought it first to the National Museums of Kenya, where they tried to do this preliminary initial excavation.
0: How big was this block of earth that they plastered together? We're we talking like 10 foot by 10 foot?
4: No, it was not that big indeed, because could say that the plaster could be something like, I would say, half meter, 50 by 40 centimeters, not that big. So indeed, when they start this initial excavation, they remove the plaster, they see these two teeth on surface uh, that look like Well, maybe human, maybe hominin, perhaps a monkey. And then in the other side of the block, when you turn it, you see something like the shadow of a spine. It is, again, the texture is so fragile that it's not clear what they really have, but it seems to be something small.
0: And that's where they called you, right?
4: Yes, I was very lucky to, to be called. It's one of these days that I'm so happy that I decided to specialize in teeth. You know, sometimes people think that specializing skulls is more cool because they are easier to see or they are more impressive. But I would say that teeth indeed is the, the, the jewelry of the crown because in such a small space, you have a lot of information. In this case, information enough to see and say that we didn't know what was inside that block, but that at least in the surface... Those teeth were human.
0: You've identified these teeth as human teeth. So what happens from here?
4: This is the moment when I suggest that we could bring this to the conservation and restoration labs here, to the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena, in Germany, because we really could uh, combine a classic manual excavation of this block, trying to get the closest we can to the bone and removing the sediment, but using also what we call this virtual excavation. And this virtual excavation means that we are using imaging techniques like you could have, for example, the CT scan of a hospital with a much higher resolution that allows you to really go through any element and see what is in the inside. And somehow, depending on the different density of the different elements, you can virtually identify them and virtually extract them and reconstruct them in a 3D manner. So this is what we have been doing for more than one year, trying to excavate it manually, but also combining it with the scanning to try to understand what was that sediment block containing.
0: What did you guys see when you started using these uh, excavation techniques, both both manual and digital, uh, at your institute?
4: Well, this has been... I would say a year of surprise by surprise. And I think that's the beauty of science. So that theme that I start by being only a sediment block with some possible hominin remains on top, we start cleaning here at the lab and we start scanning and we see that Inside, what we have there is the partial skeleton articulated. That means that everything is in place, that each bone is connected to the right bone in a body. It's not displaced. When we see the body of a child because of the estimation of the age through the dental analysis. We can say there was a child that died not more than 2.5 or 3 years old.
0: What is the story here?
4: Yeah, first of all, we say we have a body. Yeah, and we have a complete body. And when we made the 3D reconstruction of that body, we realized that that body was laid in that place in a very specific position. When you really throw a body in a hollow, or if someone fails or something happens, you don't reach this lateral position lying in your side and this almost fetal position. So you realize that there is an intention behind and that that body was covered. How can we know that it was covered with sediment and salt? Because we have analyzed the soil inside the pit, and we see that it's different in composition to the soil and the sediment you have in the layer where the cavity was dug. And also geochemically and granulometric it's a completely different sand that probably was scooped from the floor of the cave somewhere else to cover the body.
0: This is not the earliest burial of any hominem, correct? There have been other findings prior to this.
4: This is the earliest burial known so far in Africa. Indeed, outside Africa, and this is quite intriguing, in particular in the Levant, we have earlier evidences of burials associated to Homo sapiens, but also to Neanderthals. Establishing a type of connection or treatment with the dead is one of the most human characteristics somehow we have. You know, humans are a species that live continuously with the notion of death very early we know we are going to die and we live with it we try to tame death to domesticate it to delay to control to fight it back to change it to prolong so this is what we spend i would say more energy in and, and once we we have to accept that death happened then we look for ways to prolong the presence of those who die with us And we start doing things and rituals and ways of keeping connected to them to not really let them go. We know our time here in this physical world is limited and maybe this awareness that is limited make us create this whole world to extend it in the symbolic world. And it's important to see that this is not something that has been there always. We really have to trace in which moment in our life we start doing things like this.
0: And when you say in our lives, you mean human evolutionary past.
4: Exactly. It's like, well, we are one of the many hominin species that we have left behind, you know? It is quite particular that we think we are unique and we're the only ones, because it's quite unusual indeed that we are the only ones of our kind left on the surface of Earth, has not been always like this. There was a time we were also coexisting with Neanderthals, which were also an intelligent and caring species and that showed compassion and buried their dead. So uh, not all the species were the same, and not all the species were doing the same. And in the case of our species, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, both of them have shown evidences of living in this physical world, but also in the symbolic world. But before that... The evidences are not that clear. So it is interesting to know when these type of features that we recognize ourselves so much appear, you know? And, and in this case, we are really tracing the root, the, the very first evidences of something that now we consider that it is so normal, yeah? To treat the dead with the delicacy and tenderness that we do with humans that are alive, I think that's the special thing about palanthropology and palaeontology.
0: So what's next for you, Maria? Is your colleagues going to go look for more burial sites uh, near that cave, or is there more analysis to be done on the sediment block? So
4: this opens new possibilities we should be exploring. So it could be, okay, perhaps we need to excavate more in Africa to find this type of evidences. It could be also that, yeah, the behavior, the funerary behavior of populations uh, living in Africa and outside Africa was different and also leaves different archaeological traces, some of them may not be visible. For example, we could think of some type of symbolic behaviours that cannot be always archaeological visible, like singing or dancing, for example, no? We really look at something that I would say that practices like burials are quite convenient for an archaeologist because the practice itself is protecting the evidence. So in that sense, we are more prone to find it, but not always things leave an archaeological trace.
0: Maria wrote a story for us in Spanish about her research, but you can also find analysis in English by some of her colleagues. Links to both of those are in the show notes.
2: To end the show this week, we've got some recommended reading on the situation in Israel-Palestine from one of our editors in the UK.
6: Hi, I'm Jonathan Est, and I'm the International Affairs Editor based in Cambridge. As you'd expect, I've spent the past week thinking about what's been going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The terrible violence escalated so quickly, but it would be wrong to think it came out of nowhere. I asked Carlo Aldravandi, an assistant professor in peace studies at Trinity College Dublin, to consider the politics on both sides. Israeli politics has been in turmoil recently, with four elections in the past two years and they've all ended in political stalemate. After the most recent poll in March though, it was beginning to look as if long-time Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu might lose his job. The Palestinian side is no less messy. Elections for the Palestinian Authority were postponed by President Mahmoud Abbas last month. He's worried that his Fatah party would lose power to its rival Hamas. Add to that the ongoing attempts by Israeli settlers to force Palestinian families from their homes in East Jerusalem, where many of them have lived for generations, as well as a violent Israeli crackdown on protesters at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. And you've got a potent recipe for the violence that continues to rage. I also asked John Strawson at the University of East London to look into how Israel's governments have dealt with the Palestinian situation over the decades. He concluded that apart from the 1993 Oslo Accords to allow Palestinians more autonomy, Israel's commitment to Palestinian statehood has been pretty much non-existent and it remains like that to this day. I think we all share a hope for a quick resolution to this terrible violence. That's it from me.
2: Jonathan Esther in Cambridge. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who we've spoken to for this episode and to The Conversation editors, Matt Williams, Martin LaMonica, Lucia Caballero, Jonathan Est, and Stephen Kahn.
0: You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. And if you want to learn more about any of the things we talked about on the show today, There are links to further reading in the show notes, where you can also sign up for our free daily email.
2: The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sel. I'm Dan Marino. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.